Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Radio Tony and Tony TV. This is a wonderful series with Dr. Olivia Ong. But before we get on and I introduce you, let me remind you, if you're watching this live on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter, we will have Payo ready and waiting to take your comments, questions, and forward you links and information about our wonderful guest today. If you're missing the live show, don't forget you can catch up on Tony TV on all Roku, LG, and Samsung apps across the world and binge tv networks usa hero go tv networks usa and don't forget you can also watch us and catch up with shows on youtube don't forget to subscribe now our beautiful guest dr olivia ong is the founder and ceo of dr olivia ong the heart centered doctor And before I introduce you to our amazing guest today, I want to let you know a little bit about Olivia. As a compassionate leadership and resilient speaker, Dr. Olivia's story tells a story of how she overcome a devastating spinal cord injury when she was a resident in 2008. She learned to walk again functionally with two sticks and a limp after four agonizing years. Dr. Olivia's spinal cord injury taught her a very important lesson, and that is self-compassion. This is the premise behind her creative business, Dr. Olivia Ong, the heart-centered doctor. As an author, Olivia has just finished writing her first book, The Heart-Centeredness of Medicine. Uh, And she wrote the book after seeing so many of her colleagues firsthand and secondhand burnout due to overwork and stress. She writes in a way that helps doctors find their way back home to their heart. Olivia wants them to be able to lead heart-centered lives that they truly deserve. As a medical leadership coach and mentor, Dr. Olivia helps busy, high-achieving, heart-centered doctors avoid burnout and exhaustion to achieve balanced energy and time flexibility through her life transformation, the Doctors Program. She offers one-on-one coaching, workshops, and speaking engagements on burnout, compassion, fatigue, and vicarious trauma in doctors so that they can stay in the game longer and as a compassionate leader and lead a positive legacy for upcoming generations of young doctors. Welcome to the show, Dr. Olivia. Thanks, Tony, for having me. Now, I wanted to start the show today with one of your favourite quote, uh, quotes, and it's one of mine too, but I, it's, it's a beautiful quote, um, and it's from Maya Angelou, and she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said People will forget what you did, but people will never forget the way you made them feel. Olivia, that's so important when we're talking about medicine and doctors, isn't it? Exactly. For doctors, they're in the caring position. However, they've had to do so much learning, education to get to that point where they're caring for other human beings. Um, What does that quote specifically mean to you? 
I guess why this quote is so meaningful to me because I remember what it was like not to have any emotions or feelings at all, especially when I was work. I mean, I'm still working as a doctor, but back in the days when I was quite burnt out, I literally had no emotions in me, so I forgot how to feel. And mm. once I'm, I guess I managed to learn to feel again. And that's when I truly felt that I was healing from the inside out. And and I I've been so inspired by many people along the way. Um, Tony, um, I had a spinal cord injury years ago, and I've met a, a lot of very interesting people along the way, fellow spinal cord injury survivors. Yes. And I've met inspirational people along the way as well. And since I started my business this year, I've met a lot of um, inspirational entrepreneurs, including yourself. So. Oh. I think this this quote is so much more meaningful because, you know, what, like what you such a big thing. Yes, exactly. It just emotions is what makes us human. So that's why I think Maria Angelou's quote just means a lot to me. Yeah. Now, Dr. Olivia, this is the first of three shows that we're going to do together, and I thought that I'd like to begin telling the audience about you, um, your childhood, growing up, and what led you into medicine in the first place. Yeah, so when I was um, seven, I, you know, for the seven years before that, I stayed in Jakarta, Indonesia. That's where my parents are from, Uh the Indonesian Chinese. So we stayed in Jakarta and then we moved or migrated to Singapore when I was seven so basically I had to not only transition in an environment uh, where I had to learn English because I couldn't speak English at all Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a new um, culture for me and that's basically my childhood Um, I started at seven being quite awkward um, not being able to speak English but then I made friends and I think as when I was growing up my parents made sure that I had a I had a normal or great childhood. Um, They made sure that they taught us a lot of, I have two younger brothers, so they taught all of us, three of us, um, life lessons. And they made sure that we had the best education we could have and and also that we had a normal childhood. I remember my brothers playing video games. I think at that time it was Nintendo and Sega. I mean, they probably don't have that now. But that was in our time. uh, And I remember my parents taking me out to watch movies quite frequently. Good. And that's yeah, and that's that led to my current, I guess, same practice as I take my kids out to watch movies as well. Because there's well, such great. beautiful thing watching a movie together as a, yes. as a family. I have to agree and, with you that yeah, that exactly. uh, cinema experience uh, with mm. the big screen it it actually you can immerse yourself in the story and it takes you out of your everyday life and and uh yeah same I did the same thing with my kids uh, going to movies as well so life in Singapore um mm-hmm. what stage did you end up in Australia well I completed the A levels examination which is like equivalent year 12 Twelve. here in Australia mm-hmm. that's I did that in Singapore so I got the grades uh, enough to, to get, uh, I guess get me into medicine yes but I've always wanted tough. to do medicine yeah it is it is tough but it's always been my my ambition since I was 15 so uh-huh. I um, when I was 15 I when since I was 15 rather I started volunteering in um, nursing homes and yes. homes for the intellectually disabled, just helping um, people out, just tell you know, like telling them yes. stories. And I, I think I've just, just been a storyteller since I was a kid because I guess my parents have brought yes. me and my brothers to watch movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. my first movie was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in, from, in oh, 1989. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, that was a, 
that was a fantastic movie and and I've, I fell in love with storytelling since then and I've mm. loved reading books as well and in high school not only was I the school librarian I was in drama class and mm. I also helped out in a volunteer work in nursing homes and inter- homes for intellectually disabled yeah. and that's probably how Where I got into yeah, where my heart for medicine started because I just wanted to help people. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, that, that, um, I guess that drive Led to was that enough, drive. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Cause it's for people to the audience to understand getting into medicine is no mean feat. So not only do you have to do incredibly well at school, then you have to be in the top of the top to get into the various, um, uh, Educate, uh, sorry, universities across the world, anywhere. It's it's pretty yeah. much the same, isn't it? So yeah, you exactly. got into university, so grade twelve, got good grades, achieved that ideal of okay, now I can pursue medicine. Did that dream start in Singapore, and or did it start in Australia? I think um, in when I was in year twelve in Singapore. I kind of visualize a life in medicine, but oh. I think it only became obviously became a reality when I started medicine in 1999. Mm. And I, I had a really beautiful, uh, a really great experience um, doing my medical degree here in, in Australia because yes. Singapore is a very regimented, strict culture where, you know, we, our educational curriculum was pretty, you know, tight and we had to fulfill the grades. But I think in Australia, it allowed me to be free not only to socialize with many, many like-minded friends, mm-hmm. but also to free to be me, uh, which is something that I kind of never really found me yes. in Singapore yes. because of so much um, academic um, yes. expectations to fulfill. Like to enter medicine, I had to study mm-hmm. really hard in, yes. in high school. I had to not hang out with my friends as much. So I think uh, university was just that, that you know, that yes. freedom of experience to yeah, just to pursue my own ideas and not have any objections to it. So it was just great. Um, so six years, you know, I, I enjoyed, you know, medicine has its tough times where we yes. obviously had exams and things, but I had great friends and they made me feel like, you know, I belong in a, in a community. So I felt like I, I belong yeah. to, I guess, a tribe, say. Yes. The, the whole, uh, so it's six years university. Yeah. And uh, yeah. those six years are, are, are lots of exams, lots of learning, lots of studying. It's quite a, it's a big deal. And then once mm. you get to that point, then you start um, f- like full time in hospital and healthcare settings, which is a whole nother story in itself, isn't it? Um, I, as you know, I, I nurse and uh my training began as hospital-based training and it wasn't until we were almost towards the end of our training that it started to transition into the university level training. So we had a lot of affinity with the resident doctors and it was a very good learning environment where we learnt together uh, how to do things, how not to do things, and it was very collaborative. And so that's changed a little, I think, in healthcare over that intervening time. I'm talking 35 years ago. Um, So residency, tell me about being a resident doctor. When I started my internship in 2005, there was a steep learning curve for me. Yes. 
So, you know, in medical school, it's all, all are well and good exams, but mm-hmm. that doesn't prepare all of us. Yeah. I speak for all of us. When yes. we start our first day as an intern, we actually are in charge and we have to make life and death decisions. Yeah. That's um, a big change. It is. And in terms of, you know, yeah, um, in terms of interventional skills or mm. like putting in intravenous drips. Yeah. But we have to get quite proficient at it very quickly because Correct. our task list just keeps growing otherwise. <laughs> That's and, right. Yeah. So the first year as an intern, I spent, you know, just, you know, up leveling myself, yeah. making sure that I'm proficient of my, in, my um, in, in, uh, intervention skills. And as a re- and then the following year are the resident years, which is mm. kind of in between it intern is. and registrar. Yes. But it's it's kind of that those couple of years is where we try to figure out which career path we end up doing, whether we end up going to be subspecializing as a surgeon or a physician or GP or an anesthetist, and things. And they're like all that. very different parts of medicine. Mm. And I often wondered exactly. how doctors decide because, you know, being being a nurse, I saw how junior registers, mm. registrars rather and, and junior doctors were treated and I'm like, how do they survive? It's particularly those that were interested in surgery because being a perioperative nurse, mm. that's where I had most of my experience. And the yeah. way that they were were treated was just appalling in most instances and I always remember thinking how do these doctors get at eventually fly out and do their own uh speciality because they did that they were overworked they were stressed there was a lot of study there was there was a lot of bullying and um uh just that horrible behavior Olivia what Mm -hmm. um what made you choose your specialties uh, in the first instance, yeah, interestingly, I chose rehabilitation medicine, yeah. which which turned out to be irony later on. As I, will, I will probably talk about in the yes. in the interview, but I chose this particular specialty because I saw what doctors can do when they work with a team. Absolutely. So, um, as a rehab physician, we work with physios, psychologists, occupational therapists, and our main goal is to put our patient obviously as the center of our focus, getting them. I guess rehabilitating them in a way that they can lead the life that they had initially, a a new normal perhaps, but achieving the goals that they want. Um, It's about goal setting. It's about achieving goals. And patients do report quite great satisfaction in the rehabilitation ward when they relearn, have to relearn the skills. But, you know, yeah, it's it's just um, a joy to watch patients, you know, transition from not being able to walk to walking out of the ward um, a couple of weeks later and just and it's not just journey with the patient it's a journey with the family as well it's very Definitely. collaborative mm. yeah that's why I enjoy the specialty so much the um, human and I still body, practice as a uh, hmm. you, yes you, of course you still practice um the human body is an amazing vehicle for healing mm. and if you as you said have a wonderful team around you that uh helps you do that rehabilitation the body can achieve amazing things can't it exactly exactly um so let's talk about your own injury and rehab i think it's important for the audience to understand that you not only are you a rehab specialist you are also a pain specialist which is a wonderful combination of of skills to have but 
they would have they would have helped in your journey. So let's talk about that injury. Yeah, so my my injury happened in 2008, September. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 2008 was a pretty significant year. It was the first year, uh, Tony, where I started working as a rehabilitation registrar. So I was really excited. I was pumped. Yes. I was like, yeah, yeah, I was. This is good. You know, um, I, w- I was enjoying my, I was actually enjoying my work. Previously, obviously, when I was a resident, I, I wasn't really enjoying it that much. I was on autopilot mainly, but this is something I strive towards. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a rehabilitation physician in a couple of years. So that was obviously the driving force for me to kind of wake up day to day feeling joyful. Yeah. And that was, yeah, my, I, I was pretty happy with my career. I was, I mean, I was married by then um, two yes. years into our marriage and we're still married <laughs> to my beautiful husband <laughs> John. Awesome. And, and then um, we have you know a beautiful network of friends mm. and it was really like the time of my life 2008 yes. uh, but I didn't expect obviously in September 2008 as I was walking uh, to work yeah I just stepped out of a car walk in the hospital car park walk towards work and then out of out of a sudden a car at high speed just ran into me. Wow. Um, yeah. Um it caught me unaware, of course. And oh, yeah. the next thing I knew, I was just lying on the ground in excruciating pain. But I was lying down in a really awkward position and I knew mm-hmm. that I had something's happened to my back. Cause I could feel you knew straight like, away. Big, yeah, because exactly. I was lying in a fetal position and not being able to move and even oh, feel my legs. Olivia. And that yeah, yeah, and that was when I, of course, I did the doctor thing, yes. going okay, I, I don't <laughs> yes. have a head injury because I can see the sun, I can, I'm yes. conscious, and then yes. I move my arms. I'm like, oh, I'm not quadriplegic, I'm okay. And when I reached the legs, and that's when I, it really clicked. You... Either I have sustained a really bad pelvic oh. fracture, or I uh, a very severe back injury or spinal injury. injury. That's when I knew. Um. Yeah. Um, uh, Olivia, did the car stop and get you assistance? It was a very interesting, um, ex- I guess, incident because yes, it happened in the hospital car park. So yeah. within five minutes, I had a code blue and it was Good. interesting. Good. You know, like I knew what a code blue was and yes. I knew that's because someone someone's heart stopped beating. Yeah. But I didn't realize that the code blue was actually me outside in the hospital car park. Oh. I had doctors rushing in to my aid. And we called, I mean, I guess that's one of the advantages things, of right? it happening say, in a hospital advantages, car park. Not so good. Exactly. Advantages of having an injury or a medical a event one. in the hospital car park. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, I know. And they called the paramedics and everything. But but later on, I found out that the person who drove the car was a 92-year-old gentleman oh, with severe no. dementia who shouldn't have been on the road. Um, wow. And not only that, yeah, a couple of my colleagues actually witnessed the accident, so they needed trauma counseling. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah, they were very badly affected by, by oh, witnessing what, what happened to me. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, essentially what happened. I mean, the... I, just because of the commotion, I had doctors yeah. attending to me. I didn't yeah. quite take notice of the driver. Perhaps he was trying to help. I'm not sure, but yeah. it was just, it's, I was in shock. Tony. I, I, I was just, like, just going to say that shock, yeah. you'll have that, that few moments or seconds of clarity and then the shock yeah. and everything sets in and it becomes 
quite a blurry, pain-filled experience. So I'm assuming that they got you straight into ED and then that's when your journey started to to begin. Did you immediately go into surgery, Olivia, or ICU first or spinal unit? So uh, I attended the um, emergency department. Uh-huh. Interestingly, in another hospital, not at the hospital where I work in, because that wasn't the major hospital for trauma. Oh, so I was transported that's to good. another hospital, good. which is the major, the tertiary hospital for trauma in Melbourne. Good. So thankfully, I, I had a really good spinal surgeon who happened to be on call. She's oh. a, a female, lady, female spinal surgeon who's Yay. excellent in what she does. Uh-huh. Yeah, and she, saved, she basically saved my spine. Um, wow. She came in and then, uh, I mean, her registrar, David... I mean, I don't know what, but he's probably um, an orthopedic surgeon by now, but he yeah. came in and, you know, assessed me and all that and organized CT scan very, very quickly. And Good. it turns out that I dislocated my L1, L2 vertebrae and I smashed my L2 vertebrae in multiple bone fragments. And all of those fragments, I guess, bone, bony bits ended up in where the spinal cord was, um, I guess, um, situated. And yeah. that's how I had a spinal cord injury. I mean, David felt, I mean, felt sad when he gave me oh, the news. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. I was devastated. Oh, yeah. But I think it probably occurred to David that it could have been him too. And then I think mm-hmm. my accident was a reminder to many doctors that life is short and it could, bad things could happen to them too. Yeah. But obviously at that time, I, I thought things were really bad. But obviously um, up to now, obviously now we're talking about 13 years later, my life has taken on a beautiful journey but I'll yeah. prob- we'll probably cover all, obviously all yeah, that in we our, will. Top, our interviews together yeah yeah but but at that point you know when when David told me the news I was devastated my husband was next to me when he told us oh, the well, news. Lady, yeah. and then yeah and then his boss Susan came in and joined us I mean they were both really compassionate yeah. and kind of debunked kind of um very interesting because I always thought surgeons were very like just don't speak very much. Very blunt and straight to the point. And blunt. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not cold-hearted. That's probably not the right word to say. Maybe blunt <laughs> well. and yeah, straight to the point. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you probably had to deal with many of them. Yes. <laughs> but yes. yeah, and so, I know, and Susan David were just the opposite. They were so compassionate. They oh. took the time to tell me every single detail about what's happened and what to expect after the surgery. Yeah. So I was operated on that night because my spine was literally un- unstable. Yeah, it's and emergency. Wo- exactly. And when I woke up, I could feel um, feel my legs again, but I, I couldn't move it. But that was when I think the days in the hospital is when I started maybe reflecting and really reality really sunk in because right. I was on my own. Yeah, a and lot of I the was, time. Mm, and I had a lot of fears about whether I'll be able to walk again, whether I could mm. be a doctor again. Yeah. And I felt like a burden to my husband. I mean, we were only, oh. I mean, I was 28 and my husband was just a few years older. So, you know, he's had to take on a lot as my yeah, carer. That's right. And yeah, it was. And hard. you didn't um, have children at that stage. And I'm guessing no, as, as, as a woman, you're starting to think, oh my goodness, I may not be able to have or carry children. Those sorts of conversations must have gone through your head. Absolutely, it did. Um, not only that, um, many, many other ruminating conversations. Yeah. And a lot of grief 
I would oh, go definitely. through five stages of grief every day because I just felt really hurt and angry that a lot of yes. people I knew, like medical peers, moved on with their lives. They all mm-hmm. went on to have stuck beautiful, like in literally life. stuck and paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Stuck mm-hmm. and paralyzed in the wheelchair, in fact. Yeah. So I could watch everyone just having awesome lives while I just stay paralyzed. But then, you know, something happened in 2010. Yes. Um, the spinal cord injury community is a very small community. There's not many of us. Okay. Uh, there's probably about, I think in total by now, about 10,000 of us in Australia. Yeah. Not a 300 big. new cases. Of, not big, not big. Uh, mm. And 300 new cases of spinal cord injury each year. Yeah. But, you know, the, a lot of the things that we focus on as spinal cord injury survivors was learning to walk again. I mean, that's yes. the one thing that all of us want to get back. Yeah. And interestingly, they were all talking about this particular place called Project Walk in mm-hmm. San Diego. This yeah. is in the United States. So, of course, I'm part of that conversation. But initially, there's always self-doubt going, why will I travel all the way there? Does it have proven scientific just, evidence? Just the travel alone is a mammoth yeah, no. undertaking mm-hmm. for a spinal exactly. cord survivor. That's a mammoth that must have been a, a consideration as well. But the San Diego was leading the way, weren't they? Exactly. So they were very innovative. They weren't afraid to take risk. And they gave me hope because when, you know, in Australia, I was just told by my treating rehabilitation team to just get used to the wheelchair and learn to live with it. I, I wasn't happy with that because I never gave up my dream to need to learn to walk again. Definitely. It's always at the back of my mind. It's probably in my heart as well. Like I never mm. gave up when I heard mm. about Project Walk. Although initially self-doubt and cynicism, I guess, or skepticism, yes. Yes. set in. But I, I listened to my intuition and, I, and she told me to just pack up my bags and go to San Diego, no. literally. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I did. I just told my boss saying, I'm going to take two years from work yes. off uh-huh. to focus uh-huh. on my re- rehabilitation. He was very supportive and Good. My husband, John, did the same, told his boss, I'm going to accompany my wife to Project Walk, help her yeah. to learn to walk again. That's what we did. We moved all the way San to San Diego in 2010. We did for two oh. and a half years. We stayed there. Wow. But the positive side of that was that you got to walk again, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually a magical moment when I took my first steps. A year later, a year after I went into Project Walk, I started taking uh, a few steps on my own and that became a lap around the gym. Then it became multiple laps around the gym. And I think when I graduated from Project World, I was able to walk from the gym to Starbucks, which is, of course, they like Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with Starbucks. That was good. That was about 500 meters. And I didn't use any sticks. Yeah, Yeah. um, my trainers were with me, but they didn't offer any support or any help. I just walked without any aids. Wow. And right now, even though I walk with a limp, I mean, I, I walk with a limp then as yes. well and, uh, and now as well. Yes. But I, I was the happiest and most joyful person in the house, really. Oh. And I remember thinking to myself when I, when I took my first steps, like the doctor is back in the house. I remember that. It was <laughs> quite American, actually. Yes. <laughs> I had American. I know because yes. I stayed in America for so long then. I, I, You've got I the, like, the words in your head. Um, Olivia, the the, uh, evolving um, medical research around spinal cord um, injury and Mm. uh, people's ability to walk again is really amazing. 
And that together with some of the AI robotics and stuff that we're seeing at the moment makes it very interesting and positive uh, for the future, doesn't it? Exactly. And I got to use, um, I wouldn't say it's called AI yet at that time, because we're talking about 2010, but I used the exoskeleton attached to treadmills and fancy equipments. I got to use all that. And my spinal cord um, actually got, yeah, recovered because I was doing repetitive movement on my legs every day for five hours each day. And yeah, so that's how I improved my ability um, in terms of strength, in terms of balance yeah. and everything, and learning to walk again. And the, again, we go back to that amazing ability of the human body to yeah. heal and get back to what it had before and I think that that whole concept of body healing and our ability to use our mind our muscles our nerves to regenerate will be the way of the future and I'm hoping that one day people that have a spinal cord injury will be able to look forward to an amazing positive future um, through the healing techniques and the the knowledge and and research that will go into that into the future. I just I can actually feel that excitement when you talk about your first steps and being able to mm. walk again. It must have been really amazing. So at that stage, I guess you're thinking, oh, my God, I can achieve my dream of being a specialist and we can have kids and, 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 and life mm. can sort of get back to what it was, understanding, of course, that there is a permanent disability there that will impact on you for the rest of your life what it's been Mm. what has it been like being a doctor with a disability does does it change the way that you practice Um, I know that it's given you a a much broader heart-centered concept around rehabilitation but what's it like for you as a doctor yeah, very good question, Tony, because because of my experience of the spinal cord injury, I mm-hmm. I guess I finally fully comprehended what it was like to be my patients, like what's like to navigate the healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, even though I'm coming from a medical background, but when you're when you you've know, been a patient really, for many years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah, just having a lot more empathy and compassion for my patients because now I really get where they're coming from because I've been where they are. I've been in their shoes. It just widened my perspective overall as well. So not only it made me a more empathetic and compassionate doctor, it just widened my perspective in general in life. And it just helped me grow so much as an individual. And I guess the challenges of being a doctor with disability will be the negative biases that I had to encounter uh, when I'm working. Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of people knew me before my accident, so they had yes. pretty good, you know, have, have mm. they know how I was operating. I was really uh-huh. very efficient yes. um, leader and I could get things done really quickly. But having a disability means that I'll be a fair bit slower. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was very challenging to do ward rounds um, oh, you know, can, with a, walking with a limp. Yeah, I can imagine. I was actually thinking of ward rounds as that would be yeah. the biggest hindrance and the uh, and you just can't work with that same speed of mobility mm. because it's gone. I do think though that your rehab patients must 
love you because of that understanding and empathy and they can see okay well my doctor's been there she really understands what this rehab journey is like Mm. Um, that must give them a wonderful sense of um uh, okay I can I can do this hey Mm, very good rapport and we have good therapeutic relationships yeah uh, yeah because of we, we have a common ground and then it I guess when I say I know what you're going through, I really meant it because I really have Absolutely. been through what they've been through and the fear and the anxiety around diagnosis. And so I, I'm t- I take the extra effort and time to just explain things to them. I mm. listen a lot more rather than jumping in yeah. quickly. And I think patients really um, appreciate that because they are, you know, they're used to being like, you know, mostly shut down. They're being like, you know, be, having their doctors really, being quite quick and blunt with them whereas Not I think helpful. they appreciate being listened to mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah I think that they really do appreciate that very much the power of listening it's cannot be underestimated one, that's right one of the other things that you learned a lot about was the concept of self-care and so what does self-care look like for you for you now obviously it was different pre-spinal cord and you may not have even been aware of what self-care looks like because doctors work incredibly hard, long hours, lots of work. And I'm uh, quite sure from my observations, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them don't practice self-care actively. So what did you learn from a medical professional about the importance of self-care? Yeah, I had to learn this the hard way Mm -hmm. as well, Tony. So when I was a resident, this is way before my injury, I didn't look after myself very well. In fact, I was very ambitious and driven. Mm. So I was always pushing myself to obviously stay at work longer hours so that I can, you know, prove to my boss that I'm competent, I'm strong and I'm not weak. But the injury, interestingly, forced me to slow down Yeah, in a, in a, in a good way. So when I was in America... I learned to look after myself really well, even though I have to work, I have to train five hours yes. each day, Monday to Friday. Yeah. But I learned to take time to chill over the weekend. We, you know, I, we stayed in San Diego, so we could go to LA. We could go to um, San Diego. Is of great. San Diego. San Diego it's beautiful. is great. It, it's a good place, isn't it? Yeah. I like San Diego. Yeah. It's too. a good place to, yeah. It's a, it's a good, was a good place to relocate for two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> if we had to choose a, a, a city that was beautiful, very constant, Come weather, a bit like Queensland, I think. Yes. Like sunny <laughs> and the winters are very mild as well. So, yeah, San Diego was fascinating. And that's what we do on the weekends. We would go mm. to the beach or we'd drive to LA. And yeah. that was kind of my way of look, learning to look after myself. Mm. But then, you know, when I went back to uh, Australia in 2013, that's when I finished up my intensive rehab mm-hmm. period at Project mm-hmm. Walk. Mm-hmm. Went back to work. I had to hustle back into work because I was way behind mm. in my training. Yeah, because, you know, like I took two years off my rehabilitation medicine training. Mm. So I had a lot to catch up. My, my friends were already specialists by then and I'm still like and... first year registrar and I had to yeah, like Yeah, which would be up. tough. And... Yeah, that would yeah, be yeah, so was... tough. Yeah, and then eventually, you know, I, I had lots of exams to be a rehabilitation specialist, to be a pain specialist. Then I had a kid. Yes. And then I had my injury to deal with. Yes. <laughs> and then before I knew it, 2019, I had a really severe burnout. Ah. Like burnout. Um, 
how you say a burnout experience um, it was very epic because I just literally couldn't get out of bed one day yes and I had to tell work I have to be off work for two months and yes. I spoke to my GP and that's what she said take time off and all those mm-hmm. things and that's when I knew that burnout is you know if it's a left real too thing. late mm-hmm. it'll exact, knock exactly, you off your a, feet uh, yeah, it, it did knock me off my feet yeah. Mm, uh, uh, same experience you just keep going and going it, for for women yeah. who are highly driven who are wives mm. mothers and mm. devoted to their expertise whatever that may be so mine was perioperative mm. nursing I yeah. just kept going and an, again a conversation with a GP that said you must stop your brain has had enough your body's had enough you need to stop and stop work you need Mm. to get some counseling and some help and and sort this out or or things will be very bad and it wasn't until that moment that I realized what burnout breakdown overwork whatever way that you want to frame it you get to that point in your life where things stop and you cannot get out of bread and in my case combined with cannot get out of bed were constant tears I could not Mm. stop crying which was in unusual for me because I'm very much like Dr. Olivia. I just kept going like an ever ready battery, just kept going, but your body and your mind goes, okay, enough now. And it's an important conversation for us to have today because so many doctors keep working through this and they don't stop. And uh, it has impacts on uh, life, community and healthcare, doesn't it, Olivia? Exactly, exactly. And I think a big part of doctors, as well as I think I can say for nurses, paramedics. Yes, uh, all, the, been, all the caring um, professions. This is exactly. predominant in caring professions because you do and, care. Exactly. And I think the, they're even more burnt out than ever. I mean, they were burnt out way before COVID. And then and after COVID the pandemic. Happened, yeah. Exactly. I think pre-COVID, they did studies on doctors, nurses, and paramedics. It's probably, it's the same, actually. It was quite interesting. The statistics was the same, like burnout rates. It was about 42%. Then after the pandemic's just come, well, not say gone. I I don't want to say gone. gone. It's not gone. It's it's not not gone hanging around. (laughs) It's hanging around for a while. Um, The burnout rates have jumped up to probably about 64%. So that's, oh, oh, that's wow. much. Yeah, very high. So you think about it, when I when I go to work, 64% of my colleagues are burnt out. And there's, there's this um, thing, um, this trend, not trend, it's probably a healthcare crisis, I think. It's not I, a trend. I would agree you know, it's a about healthcare the, crisis. Yeah, it's, um, I would agree. Not, it's not, exactly, it's not the hashtag great resonation. Well, in the way it is, but this is the hashtag great burnout and the hashtag yes. great, great resonation. Great resonation, yes which saw doctors and nurses leaving the profession as we speak at this moment because they're Definitely. just so burnt out, so traumatized. They're just saying, this is not even worth me, my health, my family, and I'm done. Mm. Like that's mm. what's mm. essentially happening in the U.S. Yes. And I'm not, I think it's already happened. Exactly. It's happening in Australia as well. I've heard of nurses and doctors who have left the profession. Shall I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. of the recent burnout. And, exactly. and in talking about that and trying to explain that to uh, the audience, it's about mm. many elements of your life and imbalance of life. So for healthcare practitioners, let's let's take the pandemic, for instance. 
they're they're looking after huge mm. numbers of very very sick people who may or may not make it and who have yeah. complications and uh there's an there's an Ill- inability for them to step away and have a breath because there's a shortage of doctors nurses and paramedics the workload is massive and has increased increased over the term of the pandemic and yeah. it has an impact on their mind body and soul because they can't step away because there's not enough of them to do the work and the work is constant there's no there's no break for them is there that's that's kind of the way it's an overstressed healthcare system uh staffed by overworked overstressed practitioners and that's not good for patient outcomes that's not good for healthcare, and that's particularly not good for the humans that are the doctors and nurses looking after you so part of the reason why we're talking about this is because you're passionate about the health and welfare of doctors nurses but particularly doctors because they're like us we don't hear much about this topic about doctors and burnout. We do if you're in the medical profession anyway, but outside of healthcare, not a lot of people are talking about this and it's important that we do. So for you and what you've seen, can you describe some of the things that happen when a doctor gets to burnout stage? Yeah. So Tony, by the time the doctors get to severe burnout, because what they tend, they have a tendency to do is either they, you know, they've they've been through a lot of trauma. After you know, we have to admit the doctors and nurses have been through lots of trauma um, during the pandemic. But I speak in context of doctors. Not only they had to be isolated away from their family and friends. Correct. I mean, they're working the COVID ward. Yes. And they had to wear the PPE, which is the personal protective gear for the audience out there. That's the. Mm. Um, the, the um, protective gear that you see on TV, which look, makes them look like an astronaut or on the yes. way. They yes. had to do that. They have to wear every it every day. day. It's really uncomfortable. Exactly. And uncomfortable. it's hot and itchy mm. and just, it's claustrophobic, yeah. I guess. Um, I, it, so as a, as a uh, perioperative nurse or doctor, you're mm. in masks and gowns yes. all the time. But for mm. COVID, we're talking mm. about masks, gowns, suits, uh, shields, uh, everything, which makes working the physical work of, of medicine really challenging. Exactly. And not only that, it's the trauma, the vicarious trauma that I was alluding to. Not only they had yes. to witness maybe some of their colleagues die from COVID. Correct. Family and friends die from COVID. Mm-hmm. They probably had, themselves um have some, of them have some of them have died. Some of them have died, and some of them are so fearful they might get COVID every day. I mean, so my, my brother is a doctor too, yes. and he works, he's in Singapore. So he was at the front line last year. So oh, absolutely. I got, to find out, I got to find out firsthand what it was like. And that was my brother's life for like six months away from his family. He had to stay in a separate accommodation away from his young family of two young kids. Um, and then he had to wear the PPE every day. And he was so scared. Like he said, one wrong step and I might get COVID. And then he had to do all his will and everything. It was really like really anxious times for me as his sister and for his yeah. family and, and my parents too, of course. Um, mm. But stuff like that, you know, it's really 
quite serious and yes. very nerve-wracking. And yes. right now, I think all these doctors are actually recovering from what they had to go through um, during the pandemic. And they will they, be they're all recovering. Psychologically. You don't recover quickly this we're talking about months and years of recovery Mm. to get through the trauma of managing a pandemic and so i i actually want to just touch quickly on Mm. something that's probably just a little controversial because in australia we've seen lots of people protesting about their Mm. lack of freedom and as a nurse that pains me because they're coming from a perspective that they just don't understand the impact of this virus. And by just doing a few simple things, we're not talking, we're not talking about hard things to do. Wear a mask, wash your hands, get vaccinated, stay home with you sick if you're sick. Because those things are what protects our healthcare system and our healthcare workers. And the thing is, whether you believe COVID or not, if you get sick, Mm. where do you go? You go to a hospital. You expect doctors and nurses to look after you. And we're Mm. not looking after our doctors and nurses very well at all. And they're subjected to abuse and demands Um, I've listened and talked to a number of uh, doctors, nurses, practitioners in the US and some of the things that they were subjected to because of the pandemic and because of people's beliefs around the pandemic were horrendous, Olivia, just horrendous. And that has an impact on the people that are going to care for you. It has an impact on them. Um, So Yeah, it definitely the impacts on their psyche and that's yes. that causes the um that's why they all resigning in droves because i don't think anyone should be deal. subjected to such abuse no 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 agreed, Any, agreed. They should respect behavioral contract and i wrote about this actually quite recently in yes i was going to article for you. the medical journal yes australia yes that um we should actually have a behavioral contract with the people and the members of the public to prevent Definitely. such behavior yeah such behaviors towards doctors and nurses who are just trying to help them Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I totally, you know, get where you're coming from too. And I think they need to realize that, you know, majority of the patients in ICU who, who didn't survive in ICU because of yeah. COVID yeah. are unvaccinated. Absolutely. Where majority that did end up in ICU for a p- brief period of time had the vaccination, they got better and they, they healed up very quickly. Yeah. So I think yeah. once we show that evidence to them, I think hopefully they get it. But, you know, like. There's it is what it is. A very, there's a very vocal, would I say, minority of of mm. people. Um, it, it's very evident. You would have seen it in in Victoria, but in Queensland, yeah. the protests protesting their loss of of freedom, and again, from my mm. perspective, I just where is your resilience? Where is your care for your fellow man, woman, child? etc where's your empathy for the healthcare workers and the healthcare system that will look after you in mm. the first instance no matter what sickness you've got um I, I i i really think that we need to be educating the public that i believe in freedom of choice 
but with freedom of choice comes responsibility and and um, outcomes. And if your decision not to vaccinate has an impact on someone else, that's selfish. And we need mm-hmm. to start calling it as incredibly selfish. And yet you have a right to be selfish. However, this is the consequence of your action. And the consequence of all of this pandemic is doctors and nurses are stressed, overworked and leaving the profession. What does that mean? That means that if you have an accident on the highway, there may not be a doctor Mm. to care for you. If you have a heart attack and uh, the hospital is filled with COVID and unvaccinated people dealing with COVID, you may not have an ICU bed. And I think, Olivia, that we need to be talking in these terms for people to start to understand absolutely support you to have choice, but there's consequences of choice and there's a responsibility around. It's not take your freedom's not being taken away, but your right to choose has an impact on other people. And you need to think we need to be talking about those impacts as well as people fighting for their freedom. So you would have seen your colleagues in this, this situation and we're going to talk um, in mm. the next interview uh, a lot more about your book and heart-centred um, medical professions. But I wanted to talk just quickly. You would have seen some of your colleagues. So you've suffered burnout yourself. You've seen it in some of mm. your colleagues. What does that present like for others? Because as humans, we're all a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. So burnout, there's three particular components to it. That's part of the definition. So the first, yes. one of the first symptoms they might notice is being emotionally, physically exhausted. That's the that's the most common one. Universal one. And sec- yeah, and the second com- most common symptom will be, we call it depersonalization, where they start to disconnect with themselves and others. So they start mm. being cynical, sarcastic, doing a lot of venting, Yes. Like, you know, just venting, debriefing all the time, constantly Mm -hmm. complaining. Yes. And then the last thing, I think the last bit, which is a bit more subtle, is their loss of purpose in their work. Because, you know, us healthcare professionals are so mission-driven. We're here to help people, right? Yeah. Yeah, that loss of purpose, I think, is the one that gets to um, nurses and doctors the most. Yes. Because they're just losing any sense of passion and purpose in their work anymore. So. Mm. That's probably the three big um, signs and symptoms of burnout. Yeah. And there's obviously other other health symptoms that can happen, like poor physical sleep. Physical symptoms. Exactly, the physical ones, like poor sleep or emotional, um, being emotionally quite labile, like being quite cranky yes. at your kids, family, yes. colleagues, yes. patients, you know, the whole works. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and also... Um, just starting to second guess yourself and feeling mm. that you're not good enough and all the mm. self-doubt and anxiety starts to creep in yeah. very yeah. insidiously. So yeah. yeah, it's also the mental and emotional aspects of burnout that we cannot forget. We cannot mm. like ignore, yeah. but they, they, they come very insidiously. And They um, do. They I think creep as, up on you. I know. And I think all of us have very different barometers for burnout. Like I guess for you could be some like, you know, could be lack of sleep for me, could be being cranky and my kids 
Yes. More than usual. Not yes. that I'm, yes. I'm not cranky than my kids. More than usual, <laughs> cranky than my kids. Yeah. And then, you know, that will probably be my red flag, my warning sign going, uh, I think you need to go to some self-care habits. And I know that we were just talking about self-care. Yeah. But I think self-care to me, it's about, it's a even balance of work and life roles. And I think if we prioritize, let's say, work too much and not life roles, is then that's when the burnout happens. And That's vice right. versa as well. When um, we, yeah, it, it works both ways. Yes. For you at that time, Olivia, what did your self care look like? What were the things in in when your GP said to you, you have to stop? What were some of the things that you needed to do to get you back to work? Yeah. So I started with you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I started making sure that I, sl- I slept enough because at that time yes. I wasn't sleeping very well as well. It was really severe. Uh, I made sure that I exercised three times a day. I drank eight glasses of water, like even basic things like that. We, I know. Us healthcare people don't do very well. I was <laughs> just going to say, like, when, you're, when you're standing scrubbed for a six-hour surgery, yes. there's no way yeah. you can get that water in. So those are the things exactly. that nurses yeah. and doctors do to keep the public healthy that we don't ever talk about, but it has an impact on us. And it, and it obviously had exactly. a very real impact on you. So you went back to basics. Mm. Mm. Not only went back to basics, I actually um, got a life coach for myself. And it was quite funny because a couple of years before my burnout, I was a bit skeptical at life coaches in general. Ah, yeah. And, uh, and, the, and getting a same, life coach was same. what actually saved me. Yes. <laughs> and getting, getting coaching was actually what helped me see my blind spots and everything. Absolutely. And helped me recover from my burnout. And I was like, boy, the power oh, wow. of mindset, mastery, and just knowing what are my limitations and limiting beliefs are and how I can reframe it's things and just empower stuff. myself. Exactly. It's- and that's how it changed. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to talk a lot more about uh, mindset and the imposter syndrome Mm. and and all of those sorts of things in the next um, uh, subsequent interviews. Um, It's wonderful that we're hearing from a doctor that these things are powerful and they are. Once you realise what limits you, what your values are, what limiting, what are you saying to yourself inside your head? That's that private place mm. that no one gets to hear about, are you being kind to yourself? Are you supporting yourself? Are you speaking to yourself in a way that you would speak to your patients? Because if you're not, that'll eventually catch up with you, won't it? Exactly, exactly. How important it is to just recognise that self-criticism, you know, yeah. that, that harsh inner, inner dialogue. And it is and harsh. I think once we... Mm, very harsh and I think awareness is always the first key to just dealing with that and once we start to acknowledge that it's there but it's there to actually help us is when things started to you know start to improve and I think if we keep fighting it is where things get worse and worse I I was just gonna say I was that person just push it away just fight it it'll go away it's not Mm. gonna go away you have to actually consciously work within yourself and with yourself to get yourself to the other side Mm. and um, when you get to that point of complete burnout and breakdown it's difficult and it takes a bit of work so if you can circumvent that and 
Mm. the burnout and overwork not happen, you're going to be better off for it. Uh, Mind you, a a burnout breakdown will teach you loads of stuff about yourself, how you work, how you Mm. function, um, which in itself is a good thing, but it would be great to prevent it from getting to that point because the consequence is time off work, time out of uh, a caring profession that you love um, and enjoy, a whole range of wider community um, impacts as well. Um, Dr. Livia, we've got just a few minutes left. I wanted to just quickly um, say to the audience that we will be further discussing all of these concepts in depth in our subsequent interviews. But I wanted to do um, a quickly a shout out to how people can connect with you, in particular anyone in the medical profession who is interested in that concept of life coaching. And you're speaking to the converted because my life has been incredibly changed by having mentors and coaches so I'm never going to say don't go to a coach because they just give you a third-party voice that challenges the way that you're thinking which you can't do on your own because you're too close to you essentially aren't you exactly 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 and for doctors and other healthcare professionals out there who want to reach out to me you can connect with me on my social media channels. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. You can also reach me on my website at dralivialeong.com.au. And my email address is um, hello at dralivialeong.com. So you can reach out to me Fantastic. in various uh, ways. And if you're watching this um, interview, wherever you see it, there will be information and links to all of Dr. Olivia Ong's information. And additionally, if you go onto TonyLontis.com and look under co-host, you will see Dr. Olivia's uh, information as well. Um, Dr. Olivia, thank you so much. It's been just a wonderful uh time talking to you this morning i can't wait for our next interviews and i look forward to talking to you then audience that's your luck for this week dr olivia and i will be back next week with another show on the everyday business show bye for now thank you